Well, we continue on in this study, and last week, uh, you remember, we were looking, we were kind of in the rural farm community as, this, as we were looking in the passage. Today, we're at an urban construction site. So last week, it was farmhands in a field, uh, sowing seed, watering. Today, it is builders constructing a temple um, on a foundation. And so remember last week we set it all up. Dr. Paul has the Corinthian church on the exam table and he's, he's looking them over and he makes this diagnosis is that they, they, they are diagnosed by Paul with this failure to thrive. They're not, they're not progressing as they're supposed to. They're, they're lagging way behind in growth. They're still at the little table, if you remember. And, and, the, and the symptoms of this, the way he can see this is in their jealousy and in their strife and the, and the factions as they cling to these different leaders in the church and, and have broken apart the, the assembly there. And so he begins to give them their treatment plan. And we looked at that last week for this church that's failing to thrive. And he, and he uses a series of metaphors to do so. And so again, the end of verse 9 you, you being the local church in Corinth there, this local assembly, you are God's field. And that's the metaphor he's been working with. And now he says, God's building. And now he's kind of shifting to this new metaphor. And he's not saying the, the church building. We understand this is, is God's building. I remember growing up in a church uh, in, in, in the First Baptist Church uh, that I was part of. If you were running down the halls in that church building, you would have some... Some uh, senior saint in that church would say, stop running in God's house, as if the building itself were, were the building of God. That's not the point. I'm not saying you should run in church, that's, that's diff- but it's for different reasons. Uh, but the people in the church, together, we are God's building. That's the point he's making. And, so just, and, and not just any building, as we'll see, but we are the very temple of God, in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. That's that's what he's making the point. So, so get this image fixed in your mind as we begin to work through this, this passage of that construction site. And so uh, you have the foundation that must be excavated and then carefully laid. You have each layer of that structure then that's, that's built upon that foundation with equal care. And all different kind of workers at this job site and all different kinds of roles and just swarming around uh, all over the place doing their tasks. And each, each worker has a distinct, vital role, contribution to make. And that's, that's kind of the picture that Paul's setting forth here of, 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 of the church being built up. That's the image. And so one other thing to keep in mind before we jump right into the text here is, is just as we look at this metaphor together, just know that, that this isn't the fast-paced construction image that we probably tend to think of. And we see homes just thrown up in a, in a couple months, and we see skyscrapers in Atlanta that, that go up in just a couple of years, and, and, and they got heavy machinery and power tools and all these prefabricated materials. That's not it. In Paul's day, building was this very, very slow, methodical process that, that took years and years and years and years to complete a great building like this. Now, now we know in, in Europe, for instance, and in other parts of the world, we have these these, ancient, these, these medieval cathedrals that were built, some of those took four or five centuries to complete. Now, in Paul's day, the, the, the temples were not that elaborate, and, and, and uh, they were much more modest, but they still they took decades to build. So you could have some builders that are working on laying that foundation, and then you have others that come behind them and, and continue on that work, and still others after them. And so it was common for builders to move, to retire, to die during that process and never see that building completed. 
And so I, I just think it's helpful to, to be mindful of that distinction because what that, what that does is it helps us to see what's really important here is the building. It's not the, it's not the workers. That's, and that's where the emphasis needs to be. In this context, it's the church as a whole. It's, it's, not, it's not this builder or that builder who really matters. It's, it's, the, it's the building. That's what in God's building. And so the, the builders share that common vision. That's what compels them to continue on. This is their common purpose as they work on it. It needs to be ours too. So I'm just going to make four statements as we, as a big, big chunk of scripture here for us to, to take in today. But I just four statements that, I, that give uh, some definition to what God's building is and how it's to be built uh, as his church. So first, God's building only has one foundation. God's building only has one foundation. We see, so he says, you are God's building. Then he goes in verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I'll just pause there for a second. Paul, I know it kind of sounds like, but he's not, he's not bragging here. He's not, you know, leaning back in his chair and kind of polishing his nails and, you know, I am quite the skilled master builder here. And that's not what he's doing. Um, when, he, when, he, when he calls himself a master builder, that would be um, like the foreman on a construction site, kind of the principal lead on, on a building site. And, and, he, and he's very careful in the word that, that adjective he uses to describe this, his role as a, as a builder. And he says that he's skilled. Literally, it's wise. It's the word, that Greek word, Sophia. Uh, wisdom. And so he's saying, he, he's choosing that word very carefully. If you've been with us in this study of Corinthians, you understand why he would choose this word because they, they obsessed over, you know, quote, wisdom. And so what he's saying is by, by laying the foundation of the church as he did, that foundation, which is that as he's preaching the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he lays this foundation, Paul was truly wise in the way that he built, as opposed to those self-proclaimed wise in Corinth who were trying to construct the, the church on something else uh, using other materials. And so that's, that's what he's doing here. But, but listen, neither Paul's wisdom nor his skill as a church planner, neither the, the plan of this building, not the resources, none of this, none of this comes from Paul. It's not. He says what? Everything came from God himself. It was according to the grace of God given to Paul. It's all God's doing. And so Paul, though, as this grace is given to him, he has this role to play, laying the foundation of the church. And then look, he goes on. And then he says, and someone else is building upon it. Others have come behind. And then he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We sing the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And in the context of this letter, with everything we've seen, we understand specifically, this is, it's the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is, this is the foundation. That's the foundation that Paul laid in his initial preaching of the gospel there. And, and, and that's the foundation that he laid in those two years where he spent ministering there and teaching this gospel to this church. That's the solid foundation that was laid for the church in Corinth. And what he's saying is it's impossible. It's impossible to lay any other foundation for God's building, the church, and, and, and call it God's building. 
That's his point. And so I know that's not to say that there aren't groups and maybe even so-called churches that attempt to build on other foundations. And it could be, you know, just common interests or common, you know, values or morality or political views or charismatic leaders. They can try to build, you know, a church on something else. But the only true foundation of the church universal and of the local church, which is the way he's using this image here, is this local church in Corinth. It, it, it is Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. And that foundation, listen, that foundation isn't only something ma- that matters at the beginning of the building process. Like, okay, once that's done, we can move on to other things. No, everything we build that's built upon that foundation must be built in light of that foundation. You notice the emphasis in this text. Even, even in the later stages of building, the, the, the emphasis in the text is about how we build upon it, over and over again, upon it, upon it, upon it. All other work is connected to, is, is evaluated by the foundation. And so the, the quality of constructing we do is always examined in light of how it squares with the foundation and aligns with the foundation. In other words, just like we talked about last week, the gospel this message of Christ crucified, it, it doesn't just matter back then when the church began or even when this church began. You know, the, the gospel is what shapes the kind of building we're doing today. It's the only type of building that God wants, and it, it, it's, it's that which is in line with the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And so in the, in the context of, of this Corinthian failure to thrive, they, they, they were attempting to build the church on personalities. He, they keep coming, he, keep, he keeps coming back to this in this letter. It's a matter of Paul and Paulus and Cephas and these different people. And so they, they, people matter most to them. They're particularly wise, persuasive, powerful people. This was, this was huge in their minds. And so that's a foolish way to try to build the church on that foundation. It cannot be supported. Cracks will begin to form, as was certainly clear in the case of the church at Corinth. There were all these divisions that were, were, were these fault lines that were forming along those very lines. And so listen, listen, brothers and sisters, as we think about our own context, only, only Jesus can support the weight of the church. Only him. Of this church, Baraka Bible Church, he alone is unmoving and solid and secure. People, pastors are not built to support the weight of the church. Not even the most capable and charismatic leaders. Slick programs can't bear the weight, nice facilities, uh, you know, a, a loaded church calendar, a good reputation in the community, shared stances on all kinds of issues. None of that can support the weight of the church. Only Jesus can take the weight. Let's remember that. Church, we, we are not called to hold the church up. We are called to rest upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And and from that place of rest, then we labor to build. And and that's what we see next. And so the church has only one foundation. It's Jesus Christ. And then second thing, God's building is to be constructed to last. It's to be constructed to last. So, (coughs) excuse me, the foundation is most critical. You get that wrong, the building is going to collapse every time. But everything built upon that foundation matters too. Look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, 
Now, let's just stop there for a second. I, I was talking with Eric just a little bit ago before the service here. I would just, this, this is one of those paragraphs in the Bible where, and there's others like this, where we're tempted to either overinterpret the passage or we're tempted to underinterpret it. What I mean, there, we, we don't want to overinterpret this passage by, by allegorizing it and trying to you know, find the meaning of what the, the precious stone and the gold and the, and the hay and the straw, what each little element is. That's just not given to us. That's not the, that's not the point. But we also don't want to underinterpret it by, by dismissing and glossing over the plain meaning of, the, of the, the plain truth that's here. And so here's the truth. How we labor... Listen, how we labor to build God's church on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it matters. It matters now and it matters for eternity. That's what he's saying. And so with that in mind, so he talks about these gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. All commentators agree on this. There's really just two categories here. There, there, there are those that are valuable. There are those that are not. There are those that aren't flammable and those that are flammable and will burn up. That's, that's the distinction. And so the, that gold, silver, precious stones, in the context of what we've been seeing in this letter so far, I think it's very clear that these are, these are the, the, this is the type of building that will last because it's compatible with the foundation. This is the wisdom and power of God that will, will never pass away. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's building with that material. That's what he's talking about, the wood, hay, straw, that's not going to last. It's going to perish. And what does he say is going to perish? It's worldly wisdom. It's the wisdom of this age that, that's passing away along with all that belongs to it. That's the distinction. And so each, each and we know that, the, that these people in Corinth, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to utilize all of those materials. And he's saying, no, this is all that's going to last. It's that which is built upon this foundation of Christ. And so... Each of these believers' work, he says, and the, and the materials they use, look at verse 13, they will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. He says there's coming a day, not just a day, the day, this, this coming day of judgment at the return of Christ when the, when the quality of the builder's work is going to be Revealed plainly for what it is. And it's going to be exposed, disclosed. Uh, what does he say? Uh, manifest. Revealed by fire. And the fire that reveals, makes it plain, it also tests. So he says the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so all of the work done on God's building upon his church will, will be put to the test. And the criterion that, 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 that is not how much the builders did. It's not volume. It's not, it's not uh, busyness that the Lord is looking at. No, it's, it's quality. What does he say? What sort of work? So was the, was the building work in the church done with lasting materials? Or we could say, what was the workmanship? Was it reflective of gospel wisdom, of God's eternal wisdom? Or was it... Was it worldly wisdom? That's, that, that's the test. And so continue on, verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. So what's, what's going on here? There's a, there's a lot to grab in with these verses here. There's a lot here. 
Let's just say, the, the, the coming day, the day that he's speaking of, of, of judgment, it's not the judgment of condemnation. That can't be what he's talking about here because he's, he's talking about believers. We who've trusted in Jesus Christ, we've already been justified by God, declared righteous by grace through faith. So Paul can say at Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. We've been singing these glorious truths already this morning. And so there is zero prospect of future condemnation for believers. Why? Because it's all been taken care of by Jesus. And so every ounce of God's wrath for our sin was absorbed by Christ on the cross. Nothing remains but love and acceptance in the Father's heart for you and me if we are in Christ. That's truth. And so this isn't judgment for sin. It's not about a right standing for God. with God. It has to do with rewarding faithfulness to God as believers. The Lord will, it seems plain, judge the works of believers and reward them accordingly. Scripture has a lot to say about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6 in particular, in Romans 14, 10, 10 to 12, in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, is very plain, and in many, many, many places. And so the, the focus here in this context, though, I want you to see this, it, it's, it's on the work we're doing to build God's church. God's building, the local church, this church. And so we're all involved in this building project. This letter is going to go on to show this. He's not just talking to us. He is making specific application to those leaders in the church there, but he's going to make this, widen it to the whole body when we get into other imagery in this, in this letter. And so God has given you gifts to use that, in, in building one another up and building his church. And, and one day when Christ returns, all of our building work is going to be Revealed and tested. And so in the test on that day again is, he says, it's, it's to, it, it will determine reward. So those who labor to build a church on the foundation of Jesus Christ with, with, with that which is in line with that eternal wisdom of God, the message of Christ crucified with gold, silver, costly stones, they will receive a reward. On the other hand, the ones who persist in pursuing worldly wisdom and building with his wood, hay, straw. They will, they will see their work consumed. And they themselves, it says, will suffer a loss, loss of rewards. Now, he's quick to point out that this loss has nothing to do with their salvation. This isn't punishment. There's no, there's no tiniest mixture of wrath mixed in with this loss. Not in the least. He says, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so, all right, there's a lot there. And just so many threads we could pull on in this passage, we could spend a lot of time, and there are countless pages that are written on these verses here. But this passage is not intended to confuse us. It's not intended to cause heartburn to us. And this is for our encouragement, for our instruction, for our admonition, church, just as it was for that, those first recipients. And so let me just take a, make a couple additional comments that hopefully will clarify what Paul is, and is not saying here. First... The reward for the builder's work is still of grace. It is not merited. In other words, it's not according to some, as Paul says in Romans 4, 4 and 5, it's not on, it's like God, it's not that God is obligated on his part to give us something. That is not it at all. It is, it's according to the grace of God that Paul laid the foundation of the church at Corinth, and it's according to the grace of God 
that anyone has the opportunity to, to contribute to that ongoing building work of the church. And, and, the, and, the, and any good work of our hands, any building up of one another, any labor that conforms to the gospel and lasts and is rewarded, it's, 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 it is not because we are so innately good, but it is because God is so gracious to work in and through us. That is, we got to see that. So the reward, it's not deserved, even though it's according to the works that we've done. That's how it's evaluated. It, too, is part of God's gift of grace. So see that. Second, the exact nature of the reward or the loss of reward, it's really not made clear in Scripture. It mostly mostly just affirms its certainty. And so as the Bible speaks about this, and it talks about it in several passages, but it speaks in generalities. It's not telling us exactly this is what the reward will be. It's, It's using expressions like treasure in heaven and we're going to see next week in verse 5 of chapter 4 this commendation we receive from the Lord and special responsibilities. And so, so it's those kind of general terms. We don't know exactly what this will be. And then third, and I think this is important because we may get tripped up here, no matter how we experience reward or loss, we will lack for nothing in eternity. Uh, all of our cups will be full and overflowing with, for all eternity in the presence of the Lord so this isn't like this, this don't, don't try to get hung up on this. We will, we will all be filled to capacity. Uh, someone tried to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe some have, well, we won't all have the same capacity for fullness, but, but it won't matter because there will be zero jealousy or envy because we'll be full and overflowing with eternal delight and joy together in the presence of God, perpetual thanksgiving. And so that's, that's important to see. So, so there, there, there's, there's obviously some sense of warning in the passage here, and, but there's good news for us here. We don't have to build badly. We don't. As our, as our building of God's church and our ministry to one another in the church, as it has the character of the foundation, which is Jesus Christ crucified and risen, as that's the case, this work will not only survive the testing of the present day, it will survive and make it and, and will enter into that final judgment as the glorious church. That's great. That's a great prospect. And those who labor to this end will receive their due reward, which is in itself a wonderful expression of grace. And so by God's grace, let's, let's keep building God's building, the church, for eternity to last Let's build with humility and selflessly and joyfully and courageously and in faith, brothers and sisters, in faith on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And so, all right, so God's building has only one foundation. God's building is to be constructed to last. And thirdly, God's building will outlast its attackers. So in verses 10 to 15, you have some who are building... uh, You have people that are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Some are building in ways that are going to last. Some are not, but they're they're all building. And here we find, though, that there are some who are bent on destroying God's building, the church, his temple. And so Paul doesn't identify who they are, exactly how they're attempting to destroy the temple. But he does say that those responsible for dismantling the church will receive judgment in kind. So he says in in verse uh, 17, "If, if anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. Why why is that? Why that dire threat? 
Well, it's because of who the church is. It's because of who the church is. Look at verse 16. Back up. He says, do you not know that? Now, this is a question we're going to see nine more times in this letter. It's the first time we see it in this letter, but it, we're going to see it uh, repeatedly now from here on. And so as he uses this, he's, he's not just, he's using it as a, as a rhetorical device here, not just to remind them of some things that they've, that he's, they've been told before. No, he's saying, by, by asking it that way, he's, he's point, putting his finger on the fact that they're not living according to the way things truly are for them. Or, or at least they're not seriously considering the implications, the full implications of who they really are. So he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then into verse 17, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now he says, you are the temple. He's, he, that's the you that's plural. This is the y'all. And so I know in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, a passage we're familiar with, that you, as your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you, your individual body. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the church collectively, corporately. You are God's temple. The Spirit dwells in you in, this, in, in your midst in this unique way. And so he's saying that the church is that corporate place of God's dwelling. The presence of the Spirit is what marks us off as God's people. God's temple, and, 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 and when we're assembling in Christ's name, whether it's in the city of Corinth or whether it's on Corinth Road or wherever the church, the local church is, he's speaking at that. And the church, the dwelling place of God's spirit, it's the, it's the temple of God, holy to the Lord. It's just, the Lord delights in this place. He delights in it. He, he delights in every local expression of his church, brothers and sisters, Listen, he delights in us with all of our faults and with all our weaknesses and all of our stumbling. He delights in us not because we're so wonderful. He delights in us because his spirit dwells here. Because we're founded on Jesus Christ. So these verses, they show how important the church, the local church is to the Lord. I confess, even as a pastor, I take the church too lightly. I think most of us tend to. We, we want to, we, we kind of explain the church sociologically or, or just historically or culturally, but seldom do we sense that it is this God-formed, gospel-founded community that is powerfully indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We sense that as we walk into these gatherings, as we join together as a church assembly. Hey, I just asked the question to us that he's asking to them. Do you know that? Do you know that? Do you, do you know who we are? Are we, are we living in light of that? And, and what he's saying is because of who we are that we will be attacked by enemies. Of course we will. This is what the church is. But the church will stand, he says, and the enemies will be destroyed. We have no reason to be afraid, and that ties right into the last point. These last verses are wonderful, and I, I kind of regret that I didn't take a whole Sunday to develop them because it's just exploded like fireworks this week in my own heart. But these last verses of chapter 3, they keep the whole extended section that we've been looking at tied together. And so he's, he's not yet finished talking about their divisions. Remember, this is where it all began in chapter 1, verse 10. And, and he's continuing to deal with that, and he's going to through chapter 4. 
But he, but he gathers up several threads of arguments we've already heard here in these opening chapters, and he, and he pulls them together here at the end of chapter 3. It's kind of like a preliminary conclusion. He's going to have another chapter to say some things to us. But, but it's just showing that these are not isolated, random thoughts. This isn't a disjointed passage. This, he's systematically speaking to the root issues of their division and their strife as a church. And I have to be brief here. Look at verse 18. Verse, he says, let no one deceive himself. Listen to these, these words. If you've been with us, they're going to come flooding back into your mind. So I don't have to linger here. But he says, if any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And so we've, we've talked about this at length. That The Corinthian church, they, they kind of wanted to create this hybrid of of the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they wanted Jesus, they wanted the gospel, but they kind of wanted to knock the, the rough edges off of it to make it a little more adaptable with, with their context and their culture. And so, but, but what happens is when you start to accommodate the message of the cross with the mood of the culture, you lose the gospel. So Paul says, don't deceive yourself. These two are incompatible. They don't, they don't fit. You can't put them together. They, they, then Paul quotes scripture to make, help make his argument. He's quoting Job 15, verse 3, Psalm 94, 11. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. God sees, God knows. And, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the, quote, wise, that they are futile. He's just saying to this church, he says, listen, you're not wiser than God. And when you begin to accommodate the message of Christ to the to the taste of and the preferences of the world in order to make it more palatable. You haven't found a better way. Don't deceive yourselves. God sees. He knows what you're doing. So what do we do? He says in verse 18 again, if, if anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may truly become wise. What he means, again, he's saying, if you want God's blessing in your church, if we want God's blessing as a church, Let's give up our attempts of, of the wisdom of this age to embrace the foolishness of the cross that we might truly know the power and the wisdom of God together as a church. And so let's continue to take our place, church, in the company of fools who really do believe this message of Christ crucified, that it is the power of God and the wisdom of God no matter what anyone else says. Let's believe that. Let's preach that to one another, to the world. And then he's, there's another exhortation in verse 21. So this is all kind of review here as, as Paul's coming back to these arguments. He says, let no one then boast in men. I mean, this was the besetting sin in, in the Corinthian assembly. This is how that worldly wisdom tended to express itself in this local church. They boasted in people. They, they wanted to make themselves look good to one another by claiming this leader or that leader and, and latching on to them and finding their identity in that leader. And, and many of the divisions in that church ran along those fault lines of personalities. This, then, then, he, then he really gets at their pride and their division, their, their failure to thrive. And, and it's in this wonderful, glorious way. Paul sets before them, he sets before us these these twin spiritual realities, these, these two incredible truths. And these are, these are going to make all of our boasting unnecessary and, and, and reveal it for what it really is. And it's really quite ridiculous. 
Listen to what he says. And, 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 and the two truths of this, and the exhortations. Remember what we have and remember whose we are. So just if you want to write those down. Remember what we have, remember whose we are. Let me, let me show you these in the text. So remember what we have. He says, let no one boast in men. Why not? Why not boast in men? Look what he says. This is incredible. For all things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours. They are not Paul's or Apollos's or Cephas's property. No, he says, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they're yours. They, all, of, all of yours together, they're gifts from God to them collectively. <laughs> then look at the other five things that Paul lists here that are ours in Christ, the world, life, death, present, the future. Uh, D.A. Carson, a, a wonderful teacher of the Bible, he, he provides very helpful insight here, I think. He, he suggests that these, these five things, quote, represent the fundamental tyrannies of life. These are the things that tend to hold humanity in bondage, and we can identify with this. The world is trying to squeeze us into its mold. Scripture says that. The, this, this life that we cling to, it's a vapor, and it vanishes quickly, and we're, we're oppressed by that reality, and all humanity is. Death, then, becomes this tyranny that no man escapes. This makes us live in this constant state of urgency in the present because we're, we're, we're trying to achieve, we're trying to leave our mark before it's too late. And of course, that, that leads to these terrifying uncertainties for the future that just haunts our steps at every turn. This is, these oppress all humanity. And so what Paul does is he takes these things that keep humanity in bondage and he and he's showing us this radically different perspective because of what we have in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, when you get Jesus, all of those things cease to be tyrants. And instead, they become God's gifts to us. They are ours. The world is now for the believer this theater for God's glory. The, the, the life is, is no longer something we cling in, to in insecurity and in fear but now it's the sphere of joyful service to the Lord as he leads us and protects us. Death no longer haunts us at every stage. It's a gateway to glory. Our present is, is transformed. We're not driven to perform and to achieve. No, we live secure. We live secure under the good and wise governance of King Jesus who promises to work everything for our good and therefore we can face the future confident that the one who holds the future holds us securely. So you see that church, listen, remember what we have in Christ. The, the way we think, listen, the way in our current context, the way we think about this pandemic, I know it's hard and I know there are days when you really struggle, when you're weary with it and, and all the questions and conflicting things you hear, but the way we think about this should be radically shaped by these, these spiritual realities. All things are ours in Christ. Just think of this through the COVID, through this lens, this world, life, death, the present, the future. All are ours in Christ. This transforms the life of the church together when we, 
really latch on to these things and understand more and more what is ours in Jesus Christ. And, and, and this, there, there, there's more, there will be more joyful unity than we can possibly imagine the more and more deeply we go into these truths. We, <coughs> All right, so I got to jump on. Last point. So we remember what we have in Christ, and then we remember whose we are. And this is where he concludes. He says, all things are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Not only have all things been given to us in Christ, but we have been given to Christ. And the Christ to whom we've been given is God's Christ. And so Paul's trying to, trying to put us into that bigger context. Not us as individuals, but us as a local church. He's putting us in that. He's trying to reframe our thinking so that self no longer feels us, our, our perspective from horizon to horizon, but, but we see ourselves in proper perspective. All is ours. We are Christ. Christ is God's who is over all and in all. Here's the most basic fact about us today, church. We belong to Jesus. We are his we are not our own. And so as Paul finishes this chapter, he wants us to see the, the vastness of glory all around, not boasting, not beating our chests and how wonderful we are, but proclaiming and seeing and realizing that we have everything we need in Jesus and only in Jesus. And so as we see this incredible vista, we, th th that self-centeredness begins to look really quite silly. And the bickering and the squabbling, it tends to kind of get muted. And in humble gratitude, instead of that arguing and division, we, we, find, we find adoration and praise and wonder to the God who has redeemed us and given us all things in his son. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for the vastness of your grace that all things are ours and we are Christ's and Christ is God's. We confess we, we honestly don't know the fullness of what that means. What does that mean, Lord? Will we ever exhaust exploring that landscape through all eternity? We praise you and we thank you, though, that it's true. What, what a promise and we bless you that we are not our own. We belong to our faithful, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us not with silver and gold, but by his precious blood, so that we can say with confidence, there's not a hair that can fall from our head, but you permit that indeed all things must work together for our eternal good. And therefore, he makes us, as, as we grasp this, this makes us heartily willing from now on to live for him. Would you, would you do that among us, please, Lord, together as a church, as we remember again and again the blessings and the, and the privileges that are ours in Christ, and as we see the, the vastness of this landscape of grace that's all around us, that it would, it would stop our prideful self-assertion, and instead, together, we would bow in adoration and praise. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.